Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Jonathan Rousen. He's a returning guest. Back in Currents 041, we talked about his very interesting essay, Our Metacrisis Pickle. In EP 127, we talked about his book, The Moves That Matter, a chess grandmaster on the game of life. Damn interesting book. It's in his persona as a chess grandmaster that we're chatting today as we examine the current controversy known as chess drama. You don't usually think about drama and chess, at least for for the public. I'm sure to the players, there's a lot of drama. But this is an almost unprecedented uh, public kerfuffle in the world of chess. But before we get into the details of the kerfuffle, maybe very briefly, Jonathan, you can give us uh, your history with the game of chess. Good to be back, first of all. I learned the moves when I was five years old. I got good, started to get good when I played for school and then later was selected to play for my country, Scotland. Um, and then I really got good when I, I luckily won a lot of books in a comp- prize competition, studied them hard. Chess was an escape from growing pains. I became an international master, then a grandmaster. I won the British Championship three times between 2004 and 2006. And then around about 2008, when I played Magnus Carlsen, uh, around that time, I started to give up and get a so-called proper job, which is what led me to speak of things like the meta crisis with Jim in previous episodes. But I'm still quite actively involved in the chess world. I teach at my son's school. I've recently written a book about what chess taught me about life. And I've even started playing again a little bit and hope to be teaching a little bit online and things too. So I still love the game, big part of my life, but I'm no longer, you know, tussling it out every single day. Which is probably perfect. You know, here we have an actual grandmaster who isn't engaged with these guys on a daily basis. So he has little distance on it. So as soon as I started thinking about this yesterday, oh, I'm going to call Rousen. He He's the perfect guest to talk about this. So let's go on now to the chess drama. Uh, could you, you know, basically lay out what's happened so far? Okay, so there's a story and then there's a context. The story is that the world champion Magnus Carlsen lost the game of chess to a somewhat weaker player and then tweeted afterwards in a way that insinuated he had cheated. He also withdrew from the tournament. And then subsequently, when he played the same player again, he resigned on move two, again with a strong insinuation that this opponent of his was not somehow worthy that he had been cheating again. And that's led to all sorts of question marks over what it means to cheat in chess and whether he actually did cheat, and if so, how did he cheat, and the mind boggles there. And that's the kind of context in the present. But there's a much richer, deeper lateral context about chess computers, about the very idea of cheating, about the kind of, you know, since it's a Jim Rutt show, Bayesian probability as a way of making sense of decisions. There's a lot to say, but the, the basic context is the world champion has done something very surprising. First of all, withdrawing from a tournament, then resigning a game on move two in protest, strongly implying that his young opponent, Hans Nyman, who represents the USA, 
is cheating. Uh, and just a note here, uh, Hans Nyman's 19, so he's yeah. really young. Well, you say young. Chess standards, that's geriatric. I mean, really, it's um, the, the game is getting younger all the time. I, I exaggerate slightly, but whereas the sort of peak age of a chess player pre-computer age used to be sort of 35 or so, now I'd say it's at least 10 years less than that. But even then, he's still below his peak, probably. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. He's rising fast, swift right. ascent. That's one of the things that made this quite interesting. Right. Continue. Well... In essence, the game that first came to public attention is a game in which Magnus with the white pieces, now being white in chess confers a certain advantage. It allows you to take the initiative and control the game in certain ways. Nonetheless, Magnus lost rather badly to Hans Nyman in this game. It was a surprising result. Looking at it as a grandmaster, I didn't find it an extraordinary game. I thought Black played well. I thought Magnus had an off day. And then later... Hans Nyman explained his preparation that he he had predicted this line, and he also pointed out the, the the degree of accuracy required to convert his advantage. So it was a surprising game, but it wasn't like out of this world. It was merely a kind of upset. And I think in statistical terms, Hans Nyman has recently improved a lot. He's he's ascended the rating scale. We'll come to what that means in a minute. Quite fast. So when he's playing Magnus, he's playing someone he would be expected to draw with now and again, quite rarely to beat, but not somebody who's completely and utterly out of his class, someone he's a legitimate opponent for. Yeah, so then Magnus basically withdrew from the tournament, and on Twitter he posted a video and he which was a sort of a sort of insinuation based on the prior history of that video that something was amiss here, something was questionable morally, but also legally there was some jeopardy. He said, I can't speak or I'll get in trouble. To which the chess world responded rather, let's say, dramatically. Some some top players, including the U, one of the US's top players uh, and perhaps best known player now, Hikaru Nakamura, whom I also played some years ago. He sort of brought to the public attention that Nyman had a reputation for maybe uh, having cheated in the past or possibly cheating in the present. It might have been even more strongly stated than that. I forget the exact wording. But quite quickly, the rumor mill kicked off that there was a cheater in our midst and that Magnus had done this. However, the world was then waiting for Magnus to clarify what he thought had happened and why and what kind of evidence did he have? What was the basis for his decision? And this has not yet transpired. All that's happened is a little bit of time has gone on. Magnus has been stum, completely hasn't said anything. And instead, when he played Hans Nyman in a kind of rapid play event, online rapid play event, you can see them both with their cameras. Hans Nyman plays the first move, d4. Magnus plays knight f6. Hans Nyman plays c4, just two moves, very basic, standard, entirely orthodox moves. And rather than play on, Magnus resigned on move two. And he went on, he's, I think he's still leading, leading the tournament as we speak, and he is dominating the field, but he for effectively forfeited this game, but didn't forfeit in the conventional way of not turning up or just saying, I'm not going to play. It was really a kind of FU moment. He, he showed up, deliberately uh, shunned his opponent as if I'm not, you're not worthy of playing with me. I will throw this game. I don't need to show anything against you. 
so that's the kind of those are the those are the kind of bare facts of what's happened. Now the the rumor mill is asking a is it true that Nyman cheated? B if it is true, how does Magnus know, or what basis does he suspect? And then C, which is quite a big one, if he has cheated, how on earth did he do it? Right. So I can take these in turn if you like, but I'll give you a chance to come in, Jim, if you want. No, I think you're doing a great job. Keep rolling. All right. So on A, did, you know, has he cheated or not? Right. My my judgment here is, uh, again, strict, strict, sticking with the facts for a second, this is where you make a judgment of probability, right? We don't know for sure what's happened. On what basis do we make an assessment? Well, first of all, there's the, the initial game. I don't think that game by itself indicates anything about cheating. Some people thought it that he looked like he might have known Magnus's preparation in advance of the game. And that maybe there was a kind of mole in Magnus's camp who had told Hans Nyman what Magnus was going to play, allowed him to prepare it, and thereby get the upper hand. But to be honest, anyone who understands Grandmaster Chess can see that's just not really valid because Magnus didn't play a particularly strong line. So even though you know, to keep it, even if, you know, there's not, no reason why he'd want to keep this somewhat suboptimal line a secret anyway. Secondly, there's such a thing in chess as transpositions which means that one opening variation can morph into another. And that means that even if he'd, if he'd prepared something related to what Magnus played, he would be adequately prepared for it. And that's what effectively seems to have happened. The second thing about making a judgment is, is there any reason to believe, you know, prima facie reason to believe either one of these players might have cheated more than they have in the past? And there, there is some basis because, well, two things here. Nyman himself has now admitted that when he was 12 years old, in an online event that wasn't that important, he did use a computer program to help him guess them, help him play the moves and thereby cheated. He also admitted that when he was 16, he did something similar again. He says he regrets it, he's very sorry, and hasn't done it since. But there's something else going on here about how you make this judgment. And here's where I think maybe the general public are not sufficiently aware of the context. Two things happened prior to this big chess drama breaking out. One was that Magnus, after about 10 years as world champion, decided not to defend his world title. There was a, a qualifying match, and the same opponent he played last time, Jan Nippo Miniacci, or Nepo, Nepo as he's nicknamed in the chess world, uh, is his challenger again. And a worthy challenger, but I think no one's in doubt Magnus would be the heavy favorite. Magnus just said, I'm tired of this stuff. Every year or two, preparing in depth through this match. I don't need to prove I'm the best. I want to just enjoy my chess, and I don't really feel like playing the World Championship match. So it's a strange thing to do. It sort of devalues the World Championship title. But I mention it as relevant context here, because this was a sign of Magnus making his own move, doing something independently in a somewhat sort of libertarian, Elon Muskian kind of style of, I'll, I'll do it because I can, because I'm the kind of Superman, Ubermensch here. Although, to be fair to him, there's, there's sound reasons why he might want to do it. Second thing that happened that, again, people might not know about, there was a major merger and acquisition story, um, which you might not believe it, but the, the online chess world is now worth some money. It's now a significant commercial asset. There's something called the Magnus Group, which has several different sites like Chess24, Chessable and a few others. And they're quite big. 
and Magnus is associated with them. But the biggest by far is chess.com, which is um, has millions of subscribers and hundreds of thousands of players playing at any one time. And this boom happened during lockdown. It happened partly because of Magnus's fame and partly because of the success of the Queen's Gambit Netflix series. So again, it's context. But what happened is the Magnus group that Magnus is obviously the chairperson of, primary stakeholder of, merged with chess.com, making this typical to sort of Silicon Valley behavior, making this massive, effective monopoly in the chess world. And why does that matter? Because at that moment, Magnus is in conversation with the upper echelons of chess.com. And chess.com is the place where Nyman has been playing for years. They have the data on his games, and they've issued a statement after the events, the recent events, indicating that Nyman's version of events understates the extent to which he has cheated in the past, saying that, in effect, he's cheated more. Now, this makes me wonder, given Magnus's conversations with chess.com around this time, whether he has proprietary information about Nyman's play that gives him reason to believe, credible reason to believe, that Nyman is cheating. Now, here's the thing. This is where it gets epistemic. You know, he, there's a difference between suspecting something and knowing it. In, in the intelligence community, that's all the difference in the world. Now, I can see why Magnus might suspect it if he has that information, right? But he cannot really know it, I don't think. I don't think there's any basis to think he knows his opponent is cheating. He can only suspect it. And therefore, what he's done is rather extraordinary because he's acted as if he knows it. He's, he's shown epistemic confidence, if not hubris here. So that's all get another piece of context. So where we are is that people are wondering, what on earth is Magnus thinking? What does he know? Meanwhile, you've got this guy, Hans Nyman, who is very entertaining, I have to say. Like when you hear his commentary on his games, he, those audience members who know Stranger Things, he's, he's sort of got a little resemblance to Dustin out of Stranger Things. He's got this kind of boyish, slightly sort of, I don't know, amiable, cherubic genius vibes going on. But he's also got a bit of Bobby Fischer's intensity, and he actually speaks quite a lot like Bobby Fischer. There's a kind of sort of, I don't know, predatory, very focused, zealous kind of quality to him. Um, and he's also, my observation of seeing him talk through his games is he looks the business. He looks strong. He's not 2850 strong, which is Magnus, but he is 2700 odd strong. And we'll come to what those numbers mean in a second. But but he, in other words, he looks like a world-class grandmaster. He talks like one. He plays like one. Uh, and he's become that way because he's worked extremely hard on his chess and chess players are peaking quite young these days. That's quite a lot, but that's where I'm at for the moment. That was A, whether or not he cheated, right? And the answer is uh, no convincing evidence, but maybe some signal from the chess.com thing. Though, again, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results either, right? So that's quite I a think, leap. You know? I think the most generous interpretation for Magnus is that Magnus knows something that the rest of the world doesn't know that gives him reason to believe that Nyman is understating the extent of his past cheating. Uh, and that therefore, whether or not he cheated in that actual game, he is lying. And so Magnus is showing his disgust and disdain for this guy because he has reason to believe it based on proprietary knowledge. That's possible. That's a generous interpretation. The less generous interpretation of Magnus's behavior is that his fame has gone through his head. Uh, he He's a reputation for being quite grounded and balanced as a character. Um, lots of interest outside of chess. 
doesn't seem to have allowed the game to have gone to his head, but maybe it's maybe it's flipped now. Maybe this decision not to play the World Championship match, maybe the, the millions of dollars coming his way because of this acquisition, maybe all these things mean that he's lost perspective somehow and he, he doesn't really care what the truth is. He just wants to do whatever he wants to do. That's a less generous interpretation. For, for Nyman, the most generous interpretation is that he cheated a lot when he was young, or at least cheated to some extent when he was young. He is a reformed character who has worked brilliantly hard on his chess, given everything to his game, and is now peaking, uh, and happened so it had a good day one day against the world champion. Um, yeah, and those are the options. My, my sense of it is that Magnus has slightly lost the plot, maybe on the basis of a bit of extra information that isn't that convincing, um, and that Nyman is merely a, a rapidly improving young, strong grandmaster who deserves not to have his reputation sullied. Yeah. Uh, good. Let's, uh, and I'll put my cards on the table now. That's more or less my belief as well after I've looked at some of the evidence of not being a chess master. I don't have the context, but I, I would say I'm fairly decent at understanding inference, causality, probabilities, etc. For instance, one of the things that I found interesting, we talk a little bit about the ELO rating, which is these numbers that people throw around, 2850, 1700, you know, whatever. It's a very interesting uh, calculation, which uh, people live and die for in chess. And the difference between Neyman and Carlson is significant, big, but not overwhelming. Right, it's about 200 points, and I found a reference. I don't know if it's true or not, and the white versus black may make a difference. Uh, but the reference I set found said that a 200 point differential should mean that the better player should win 76 percent of the time. Now that's a lot, and it's enough means if you run the numbers to win six games in a tournament, uh, your probability of winning the tournaments. I haven't run the numbers. I probably should do that, but it's got to be up in the you know, high 90s. But any given game, it's only 76 percent. So. The probability of a person 200 point, 200 ELO points below of winning a game is 24%. So not, you know, a complete unexpected thing. Exactly. And moreover, I believe, although I could be wrong, that the gap is more like 150 points and not 200. And for those listening very quickly, the ELO rating scale is a, basically a status measuring device in the chess world. It measures how roughly how good you are at the game based on your based on your games historically and particularly your more recent games. And the way it does that is that you, you play players who have ratings to get your rating, first of all. And then on that basis, if you, to give you some idea, if you play someone the same rating as you and you, you win, you'll gain a certain number of points. If you lose, you'll lose the equivalent number of points. Um, if you draw, if your rating's higher, you'll lose a little bit. If your rating's lower, you'll gain a bit. And the idea is that the rating system over time means that the, the number the player has reflects their expected score in a given game against a given opponent. And it's quite an effective system, and chess players do take it quite seriously. But I would add that uh, yeah, color is somewhat relevant, Jim. If you're playing white, your odds are slightly higher typically. But then if the opening doesn't go well, that, that advantage is nullified and you know everything is back on the table. So... The fact that Nyman beat Carlson is not that extraordinary. It's really not. It's a it's an it's an upset, but it's not like this has to have a devious explanation. Not at all. Now another topic that I dug into as I did my research for the episode 
some evidence that could point in either direction. I'd love your grandmaster perspective on it. Apparently, it's fairly common for people's ELO ratings to flop around a bit when they're really young and then to kind of reach a plateau and then to only very slowly increase thereafter. Neiman's uh, trajectory, uh, the first part is correct. He flopped around all over the place when he was young, but then he reached a plateau in his uh, 15, 16 years old and stayed at around, uh, look here at this graph, 2450 for you know, a couple of years, two and a half years. But then at an unusually old age here, he started a fairly rapid ascent from 2,400 to wherever he is today uh, over a period of about two years. And, you know, one could uh, make one of two arguments. One is he has developed some new master way to cheat that no one else has ever figured out before and has used that to drive his things up. Or he's had an intellectual breakthrough, perhaps driven by playing things like uh, alpha zero or something like that, that have opened up the conceptual space of chess right. uh, beyond what mere human players have ever done. And he's actually made a conceptual breakthrough that's allowed him to legitimately uh, grow his power more rapidly than is, than is usual. So I guess two parts of the question. One is this reference I found online approximately accurate about the tendency to plateau and then grow very slowly from the plateau and that this rapid rise is unusual. Uh, or is that not true? Uh, and if it is true, then does it provide any uh, basis for inference uh, about how he might have achieved that, uh, that rapid growth? So the question of whether it's true is an empirical question that I'm not certain of the answer to. What I can say vis-a-vis my understanding of chess improvement, having been a player myself and taught lots of players going through it, is that that plateau period you describe is not really a plateau. In other words, the fact that your rating stays the same doesn't mean you're not learning a great deal. But there can be moments of kind of crystallization of nonlinear jumps. So if you're 2450 for two years, but you're playing a lot, you're working your chess a lot, and you're um, still quite young, the chances are you're getting a lot better. But it might take a little while for that to show in your ultimate results. Remember in chess that in order to win a game, you have to overcome a lot of resistance. So sometimes you might overcome all but the final line of resistance and make a draw, and then you just get a tiny bit better, and suddenly all those games that were drawn suddenly become wins. That kind of thing can happen. Um, So I don't find Nyman's trajectory anything other than impressive. I don't find it suspicious. However, this is where I mention Bayesian theory as a backdrop to this for the more statistically-minded people, because there's a question of prior probability, right? If this is any old chess player, then, and you have no reason to think they're cheating, then you would discount the hypothesis that cheating is a foot as being very unlikely. But if this person has been shown to cheat in the past, you, you do at least have some reason to doubt and to look a bit more closely. However, here I can say that there is a computer scientist, statistician, chess cheating expert called Ken Reagan, who has done precisely this with Nyman's games over the last, I think it's four years, uh, I need to double check the details, but certainly a significant amount of time. And his view is that based on the, the studies that he's run, checking Nyman's games against computer engines, and not just looking for one-to-one correspondence, it's a bit more sophisticated than that. And he concludes there's no evidence of Nyman showing cheating online or off. That's his view, an expert verdict. And to be honest, I think that's what reasonable people would have to suspect. The question is, is there reasonable doubt? And I think 
without Magnus sharing why he thinks it's the case, I don't think the doubt is yet that reasonable, to be honest. Because what have we seen? We've seen a young, strong grandmaster playing well, beating a world champion, having an off day. And not much, we've, we know that he has a history of cheating online when he was not that much younger. We say young, 16, like it's, you know, decades ago, but the guy's 19 now. So this is like three years ago. And so it, you, you would have to investigate it and wonder. And then the question is, well, how on earth would he have done it, right? Man, I love some of the theories, you know, Elon Musk's theory. Right. So, Lisa, so how might one cheat? Che you think about chess, you can't cheat in chess, goddammit. You know, it's uh, there's no dice rolling. It's, it's you know, mano a mano, right? Uh, but obviously, uh, tell us how we might cheat in chess for his own clock. Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, it's certainly not Elon Musk's theory, although he did share it. Um, so, there's lots of things going on here. One is that uh, I remember like several decades ago, uh, English international master Bill Hartston wrote a book, How to Cheat in Chess. This is pre-computer era. And this was very different. This is all about distracting your opponent and making loud noises and wearing fancy clothes and stuff like this. Since computers came on the scene, so it's about 25 years ago, roughly, that Kasparov lost the deep blue in what was thought to be uh, a big moment for humankind as a kind of artificial intelligence, but really just a lot of processing power um, defeated the world champion at chess. It was thought to be a kind of watershed moment. Um, since then, anyone with access to a chess computer, at that time with Kasparov, it would have to be a large computer with lots of processing power on big engines and stuff. But as time went on, of course, any smartphone now can carry a chess engine that is significantly better than the best grandmasters. And remember, you don't have to consult this this thing every single move. Good chess players know when the move is particularly important. In effect, when things are relatively strategic and relatively clear, you can often compete with a player who's a bit better than you. But then they'll come to you'll get to this crunch point tactically when the forces are relatively integrated, where actually it's very hard for the given the cognitive load, the cognitive bandwidth of a human being, even a very strong chess player can struggle to keep track of all the variations and to see all the ideas that lie within a sort of five or 10 move kind of horizon. And at that moment, if you can switch on the computer, it can be a decisive advantage. So the claim is not necessarily that the computer is saying, play this first move, play this second move, play this third move. It's more like trust your grandmaster judgment. If it gets to a difficult position, call on me, right? This is the conspiracy theory. Now, the question is, what would it mean to call on the computer? Now, in back in the day, by which I mean maybe 10 years ago, people would take their phone to the bathroom, have a look, and come back and, you know, make a move on the board. No one would be any the wiser. In fact, there was a world championship match between Kramnik and Topalov where there was an accusation that one of the players was doing precisely that, and they had to check the ceiling for wires and cables and all the rest of it. Um, but nothing was shown. And in the same way now, if I, I recently played a tournament, I came back out of retirement uh, for fun mostly, just to play some chess. And uh, there the rule was, if you're caught with your phone on your person, even if it's turned off, even if it's silent, uh, you lose immediately by, by forfeit because the threat of cheating is so great that you have to remove all reasonable suspicion. So all the players hand their phones in now to the desk of the arbiters. But at the very highest level, it's more than that. They also get screened like an airport screening to check for electronic devices. So if they're in this room, they're clearly without electronic devices. 
the que- the mind boggles. How on earth is this player going to get tips? Now, back in the day where you had an audience, a live audience, you can imagine, uh, you know, an eyebrow raise meaning one thing and a touch of the left side of the nose meaning another, and you could create a whole cryptology out of this and have fun with it. But now you're, there isn't even that option. So somehow, if he is cheating, and if the cheating goes beyond merely having access to Magnus's opening preparation, which wouldn't be a decisive advantage, by the way, it would just be a, a setback for Magnus. If he does have access to engines, computer power, it has to come somehow wirelessly, and it has to convey it to him somatically. So it could be an earpiece in the ear, but that's checked for these days. That would show up on most electronic scans. It could be some kind of electronic device in footwear. And then the most controversial, funny, humorous, dark in all sorts of senses is that there's a place where the sun doesn't shine, where you, you, put, you place something that can receive a, wire, a wireless signal that in effect vibrates in a way that indicates to you which way you should move. This is a so-called anal bead hypothesis, right? Now, I, for the record, I find this extremely far-fetched. I don't think it's likely. I think it's amusing. And I think maybe there's a James Bond movie in the future where it will feature. But I don't think it's what happened in this case. Um, but it's just to say that when people wonder how on earth do you cheat a chess, you have to understand it's not the case that you need to know every move. You merely need access to that device <clears throat> at the critical junctures in the game where you can feel that the right move is slightly beyond your capacity to discern, whereas a computer would actually see it instantaneously. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a little bit. It's kind of an interesting information theory problem because you don't need a lot of information if you have a very sophisticated encoding because at any given point in the game, there's typically only two moves that are actually probable. So actually you only need one bit of information. Uh, you know, send a zero if the move that you should make is the one that's closer to the upper left-hand corner and a one if it's to the lower right-hand corner or something like that. I hadn't really thought through the encoding, but you certainly know more than four bits. So only right. a teeny, teeny bit of signal. You could make the lights flicker, for instance. There's all kinds of ways to get a very, very thin bandwidth message if you had, you know, pre-agreement on, on what that encoding meant. Right, uh, and so that makes the uh, the defense against cheating uh, from a theory perspective a lot harder. You know, if you had to actually send the whole board and the positions, then do this and that. You know, then you're 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 really stretching credulity. But to send, let's say, two bits of information, ooh, there are a lot of tricky ways to do that. You could have somebody with a pile driver and out on the street, right? You could you could. There's lots of ways you could send two bits of information. This is why. This is so. There's two things here. This is why the fact that it can be relatively easy to convey a small amount of information. I mean, keep in mind, Morse code is basically a binary device, and you can there is an algebraic notation in chess, so you can effectively, through language, communicate the move <clears throat> just through two bits. But the other thing going on here is that for some time now, when Kasparov played Anand in New York City, uh, now let me get the year right there, I think that was 1995, they had a glass uh, room that they were... You know, sequestered from the audience so they couldn't hear the audience. That was more about the audience than about cheating. But it was um, it was nonetheless the case that from then on, players tend to be sequestered from live audiences. And you can't see things or hear things that easily. But you can imagine for tournament organizers, it's a bit of a nightmare because you want to have a beautiful venue with a live audience or whatever, much harder to do it. Which brings me to the second and maybe more fundamental point 
This is a particular tragedy for chess because what is it to be a chess player? Well, it's to be somebody for whom the opponent looms large. It's to think in a way that you are obliged to simultaneously think about the opponent, which is why chess players might find it quite hard to be loyal because they can always see the other side. They can always see the other perspective. It's as they mobilize their own idea, they mobilize the counter idea. But it also can create a certain kind of vigilance. In order to play chess well, you're really fighting against all the reasons why your good ideas might be wrong. You're falsifying your hypothesis in proper, you know, in proper sense. You're not verifying it. Weak players verify. I play this and it's a great idea because look at all that stuff. The stronger players are more like, I play this and here's why it might not work. Check, 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 check. Oh, actually it does work. That's nice. I'll play it. Now, the reason that's relevant here is that cre that level of vigilance uh, under competitive pressure becomes a kind of hypervigilance, which can become a kind of paranoia, such that everything begins to look suspicious and you doubt your opponent's intentions and good goodwill. And that seems to have been what happened here. Um, but it's hard to be sure until we hear more from Magnus. Wow, this has been an incredible examination of this item in the news. And uh, I one of the things I love about it, it's essentially a you know found laboratory for sense-making. You know, what's going on here? And, you know, why don't you wrap it up from that perspective? What should we take away from this in terms of certainty, not certainty, unknowns, unknown unknowns, et cetera? And where does that leave us epistemologically on this right. question? Well, um, there's the one key distinction is the difference between knowing something and suspecting it and, and, and how much that matters morally. Like, are you justified to do something um, which can damage someone's reputation if you suspect them of something as opposed to knowing it. And that's the whole idea of reasonable doubt in law. Um, so the question then is, what is reasonable doubt in the context of prior probability? Um, and that gets into questions of reformed characters. If someone has cheated before, does it necessarily mean they're more likely to cheat again? Probabilistically, yes. But is it fair then to a person to always be under that suspicion. Um, the other thing going on here is what does it mean in general to cheat? What harm does that done to the, do to the social fabric? Once the, I, you know, there's a saying that what hurt me is not that you lied, but that I can no longer trust you. In the same way with the chess world, what's painful here is not that the odd player cheats. It's that the entire atmosphere gets contaminated with suspicion, hysteria, and paranoia. Now, we're not there yet, I don't think. I think this can't be overstated. It's become a very exciting story. Magnus <clears throat> has played it well from a PR perspective in the sense that everyone's talking about it. But sooner or later, it has to go away, and we have to get back to the, the really good news stories about chess, which is the game is booming. Uh, more people are playing than ever, and um, I hope that we can get to that point quite soon. All righty. Well, let's wrap it there. Thank you for an excellent overview of this dramatic and unusual flurry of news from the world of chess. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.